This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. We're going to be talking about the potter and the clay this morning. I thought that would really set us up right to really uh, think about Jeremiah chapter 18. If you'd like to find your Bible and go to that with me this morning, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1 through 4 would be our text. We're talking about God is for me. Everyone say out loud, God is for me. Come on, everyone. God is for me. God's for me. Uh, that's the summer series, and I think it has uh, a great impact, great words to it. We talk about an attitude that God has toward us. I've talked to so many people over my lifetime where people do not really understand, or they understand but emotionally don't feel. They don't feel that life is for them. Well, there's a lot of room for discussion there. Or that people are for them, even family sometimes. Discussion there. Or that your boss is for you, or we could start going through. But the one stable factor in life, God never changes. God is not like anyone else. He's not like a friend, not like a spouse. He's not like a mom or dad. He's God. And as God, he does not respond to you the way you respond to him. He does not govern his emotions towards you by your emotions toward him or by how good you do or how much you achieve or how much you will please him and everything that might come out of your mouth or we could go on and on about that. God's different. He's for you when you have absolutely nothing to offer him. Nothing. Matter of fact, what you do offer is so wrong wrong. Doesn't, it does not even come into the category of pleasing God. When we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And after we are born again, we still have a problem with this sin thing, this fallen nature, this me, this Thing called Frank DiMaggio that's not totally redeemed. I still wrestle with all that. And I can't present to Jesus a totally perfect me. And sometimes it's discouraging. It's flat out discouraging. I should be further along. I should be able to change more things. I should have that area conquered by now. How could I even think that thought? How could I respond with those words? Knowing Jesus, having the Holy Spirit, studying the Bible, being in church. How could I have these things still tormenting my soul or harassing my character? It can be discouraging. Israel was the nation that God chose it says in the Bible, not because they were a good people, because they were stubborn and stiff-necked. And it also says that Israel as a nation, even though they had God as their king, they went after all the other gods. They committed spiritual 
fornication, adultery, and harlotry. They ran after all the other women, so to speak. They were not a model nation. They were slated for judgment. God could just wipe them off planet Earth. And that's where Jeremiah comes in. Where Jeremiah is trying to talk to this nation, he's trying to reason with them, and they will not reason with the prophet. They will not listen, and they will not respond. They are doing everything to resist every word that comes out of his mouth. They actually tormented him, threw him in prison, put him in a mud pit up to his neck and left him for days. They did all kinds of things to this prophet. They did not like his words, and they were not responding. Jeremiah was a man of deep sorrow. He was a man of deep burden. He's one of the saddest prophets in the Bible. Along comes this chapter that we're dealing with this morning, this verse, where God says to Jeremiah, um, stop. What do you mean, stop? I, I want you to stop and do something for me. Okay, what? I want you to go into town and I want you to go to a potter's house. When you get there, I will talk with you about something. But I want you to go there and visually watch the potter. So he did. And that's where this chapter is born and one of the most famous verses in the Bible about potter and clay. And a lot of songs have been written out of it and poetry and pictures and images. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a famous portion of Scripture, but it comes out of a very difficult time in that man's life and a very difficult time in the nation, a very difficult time because people are not cooperating with God. They're not cooperating. So he goes to the potter's house. Now, I want to go back before I read Jeremiah and read my statement again, all right? God is for me all the time. In the good and the bad, when I'm doing great, when I fail or fall, in disappointment, discouragement, extraordinary trouble and pain, God is all-powerful, I know that. Always loving, I know, but I don't always accept it. Ready to help me, I know that, but I don't feel I'm getting all the help I need. Ready to help me right now. Psalms 56 is our key scripture. Then my enemies will retreat when I call to you. This I know. God is on my side. The day I call to you, my enemies will be turned back. I know this. God is on my side. We've talked about God's on my side with his goodness. We started with that. We talked about strength. We talked about prayer. And today we're talking about another one of those solid rock foundation piece you've got to have. You've got to have this one. You've got to have it. Because you'll deal with it like we all do. You've got to believe this. God's for me. He's good to me. He answers my prayers. He gives me strength. But I think maybe one of the most important things that have taught my life 
He never gives up on me. Never. Now, I'm the kind of guy that came out of a Christian home and shipwrecked my life. So I know what it's like to turn against God, live in sin, be wrong, be bad, uh, not worth anything. Uh, I, I know what it's like to be on that side of God where I don't feel good, I don't look good, I don't act good, and I'm not even sure what God wants from me. And it frustrated me even to think about how to turn my life to God because I didn't trust God. I don't even know God, and so I'm going to do it myself, but I'm messing up. What do I do with all this stuff? Even in my stuff, God was at work, mysteriously, sovereignly, unbelievably, at work in my life. God never gave up. God did not turn against me. God did not just say, okay, you are one messed up fella. Go mess up as much as you want. I'm not going to deal with you. God doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. Jeremiah was ready to wash his hands because these people were rebellious, immoral, idolatrous, Against God's house, against God's word. I mean, these are bad people. But there's one thing Jeremiah missed about those bad people. They were God's people. He chose them. They belonged to him. They didn't belong to Jeremiah. They belonged to God. And Jeremiah was starting to get a little bit of an attitude. It's all about me and my persecution. Oh, me, why don't they respond to me? So he's starting to get an attitude about his own ministry, his own perspective, and a pretty bad attitude against those people. God says, time out, time out, Jeremiah. You, you're missing something here. What am I missing? Well, go to the potter's house, Jeremiah chapter 18. I'm reading from the message translation. I need more monitors, Matt, a little bit. God told Jeremiah, up on your feet. Go to the potter's house. When you get there, I'll tell you what I have to say. So I went to the potter's house, and sure enough, the potter was there, working away at his wheel. key part of this is right here. Whenever the pot, the potter was working on, turned out badly. There's a lot in that phrase right there that God has put into test to this man's concept. The pot's in God's hands. God dug the clay. God put the clay on the wheel. It's a, it's a God thing that he's saying here. This is why God is talking to this prophet. And yet, in the hands of God, he says, the pot working on this, the potter working on this pot turned out badly. How can anybody in the hands of God turn out badly? Isn't God sovereign? Isn't God more powerful than your wimpy little will? Can you actually 
Do something to form God's hand differently on your life. Aren't you strong enough to do that? The answer is no. Well, then why would God let something turn out badly? Why? And this is in your Bible's parable that God's given this prophet. The potter was working on, the pot turned out badly, as sometimes happens when you are working with clay. The potter would simply start over. And use the same clay to make another pot filled with some pretty deep stuff right there. If I'm the potter and you're the clay and you've messed up, I take the clay, I throw the clay away, I get some different clay, and I try to build a better pot with better clay. Why would I use the same clay if it's already faulted me once? Why wouldn't I just rid myself of the trouble and start all over again? The words of the parable are divinely inspired as God is instructing this man as he's instructing us because this parable goes right to Romans chapter 9, other key places in the Bible where God says, by the way, when that pot doesn't turn out right, I don't discard it. I don't throw it away. I don't leave it. I don't throw it in the scrap pile and say, wow, hard clay, bad clay. Bad genes in that pot. Bad history. Bad family. Bad habits. Can't break them. I am sick of dealing with some of their dysfunctionalities. I am not going to mess with that clay anymore. I'm going to go to the mountain, dig out some fresh new clay, and build myself the pot that I'm really after because that clay will never make the pot that I really want to make. It doesn't say that. It says that God smashes what's on the wheel and starts over again with the same clay because God has the power to turn the clay into better clay. Now that's God. Man would throw it away. God says, I can change the clay. How can you change the clay? Because I'm God. But it doesn't make sense. Never does. Never does. That God can take something so bad and make it so good. So good. So Jeremiah is starting to catch on. Now, the vessel, you and me, where the work is a work of progress. Now, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 3. Rise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. I, I really hope that what I'm saying today, that you actually will come to the potter's house in your mind and spirit, and you will hear the words of God come into your spirit. God's the potter. No doubt the Bible teaches this straight up, straight through. Got it. Okay, I'm the clay. I'm going to watch what God does on the wheel, and I'm going to hear what the Lord is saying. Who really 
gives up first on you? Who is it? Who is it that gives up first on you? Yourself. Other people can have great faith in you and you can have no faith in yourself. Because only you know, only you know how really crummy your clay is. You won't even confess how crummy your clay is. How bad that clay is. How many bubbles are in that clay. How many pieces of rubble and dirt and straw and weed and other stuff and foreign debris. And only you know what is in the clay. So when someone comes and says, you know what? God is going to do a great work in you. You believe the words, but you live with the clay. You know, God's going to make something awesome out of your life. And you're thinking if you knew the clay he had to work with, you wouldn't prophesy such lofty words. Because only you know the clay. Your clay, your family's clay, your history clay, your genes, your what? You put it all together. You never live a solo life. Your life is lived in the background of many other lives. Family's one of them. And that tree is there, and it bears fruit, good and bad. What kind of clay are you? Well, I went down to the potter's house, verse 3. I went to the potter's house, and there he was. And this phrase just kind of captured me. Making something making something on his wheel. Another translation, sure enough, the potter was there working away, doing something on that wheel, making something. No one can see. Can, can you get into this and imagine that no one can see in that ball of clay what the maker sees in the end result? No one. All you can see is movement, push, pound, water, push, pound, beat, wheel, fire, beat. And you're thinking, well, what's it going to be? It's going to be a flower vest. Nope. It's going to be for liquid. Nope. It's going to be a beautiful. What, what is he making? Nobody knows but the person whose hands are on the clay. If you know any potters, you know one thing about them. When you sit down at the wheel and you start working on clay, it's very personal, intimate, and detailed. It's not mass production. It is absolutely a relationship between hands and clay. It's a relationship between what isn't and what's going to be. It's a relationship with the sovereign hands that are on the clay to say, I know exactly where to push, pull, and make because I'm making something. And you can't see it. One of my great pastime enjoyments is reading. I love, I have to admit, I love the books of people's lives that were nothing. And they became something. Broken, wrecked, surprising. 
Even the Steve Jobs movie that's coming out, I can't wait to see it. There might be some bad parts. I'm not saying that you should see it. I don't even know that. But I've read his book, and you know, he just fascinates me to see what was not to be, not to be. And it became, and became, and became, and became a culture shaper more than maybe anything else in the last 20 years. Who would know? Who would know? Who would know that pot-smoking hippie? Except another pot-smoking hippie. That he would become something great. He was weird, strange, funny habits, funny ways of thinking. He was all over and if you go to Churchill's life, it's the same thing. You read his childhood and his early, and you think, this man is going nowhere. And God says, you can't see what I see. I see a Churchill standing between hell itself, saving a nation. I see this stuttering, chubby little man that people hate, and his parent tore apart. He had more dysfunctionalities than a normal guy. By far, by far, his mother was one of the loosest women in all of England. His father was one of the meanest dads in all of England. He had no early childhood, had no early family life. As you go through his life, you're thinking, how can anyone make anything out of this piece of clay? Guys, you can't see what I see. You can't see it. I'm making something. Now the people come by and say, what are you making? Just wait. It's going to be awesome. Can, can I just say to you, you're on the wheel, and God is making something. Even though you will sell yourself short, other people will interpret the clay to be, to be, to be. Other people will say things, but I'm telling you right now, God is up to something good in your life. And God will not give up on you. Even if he has to smash the clay and start over again, there's crises, there's times where the clay is smashed. You think, well, it's over. God says, it's never over. I'm starting over, but it's not over. Not over. I'm going to persevere, and I'm going to get what I want out of this piece of clay. God has a habit of being stubborn. He doesn't give up. God the potter is making something. Psalms 40, verse 2, he also brought me out of a horrible pit, out of miry clay. How great a verse. Psalms 40, verse 2. God the potter is making something. What? Out of this horrible pit pit he dug me, put me upon a rock, and established my steps. Who would have known? Who would have known? That piece of clay on the potter's wheel. A man, as a boy, again had a horrible childhood. Mother died when he was six. Start going through what happened with his Stepdad and his stepmother. It's a horrible life. He was beat, ridiculed. Surely in today's world, he would be looked at as an outcast child. 
Well, he became a rebel, joined the Navy, got kicked out. Finally, got into sailing with the slave ships, 1700s. Became a cruel master on the ship. Cruel. If you read what he did, you cannot comprehend it. That he would take an axe and chop off their arms and their legs below their knees if they didn't obey him. That's what he did to the slaves. He would drown dozens of them in the ocean and drag them behind the ship to teach the other slaves to listen to him. He was a cruel, cruel man. But one night, God, it's a long story, got to this man, turned his life around. He called on the name of the Lord. Nobody believed that he would ever change. He did change. He gave his life to God when he landed. He did work slave ships seven years after he was a Christian. Seven years. I didn't know that. But not one slave died on his ship when he was a slave ship captain as a Christian. Not one slave. So he was redeeming part of himself, and finally he says, I can't do it anymore. Gave his life away. Became a preacher. For seven years, he applied to be ordained with the Methodists, the Presbyterians, all the churches in England. Nobody would touch this man at all for seven years. Finally, one little small church in a small, unknown little town, Olney, in England, ordained him. He began to preach. He also began to be friends with William Cowper and William Wilberforce. Cowper was a poet most famous in his writings, but he was suicidal, tried to kill himself all the time. Fell on a sword, tried to hang himself, the chair broke. He did all kinds of stuff. So John Newton took him in under his wing. John began to disciple this man out of his suicide. No one else could get to this fallen man. William Wilberforce, who was a politician against the slave industry, was in a horrible situation over and over again. It was John Newton who took him aside and said, don't quit, don't ever quit. Began discipling him, praying with him every week, poured his life into him. Who would have known when you had that piece of clay that was cruel, ugly, mean, immoral, vulgar, weird. I mean, the worst kind of human being. You would never have known a worse human being than John Newton, probably. It's a horrible human being. But God had his hands on the clay. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. And he says this about himself, <clears throat> his last words before he died. It says, thou hast given an apostate a name and a place among thy children, called an infidel to the ministry of the gospel. I am a poor wretch that once wandered naked and barefoot, without a home, without a friend. Now for me, who once used to be on the ground and was treated like a dog by all around me, Thou hast prepared a house suitable to the connection thou hast put me into. 
His very last words he utters, I am the greatest of sinners, but I have the greatest Savior. I have the greatest Savior. Only God could look at that piece of clay and say, I'm making something. <laughs> sure you are. Can you imagine? He died when he was in his 80s. So go back to his birth. Westminster Abbey was already established. Westminster Abbey is when they, I've been there, and it is an out-of-body experience to go through and visit all the great uh, tombs and, and statues of all the great kings and queens and, and all the politicians, and everyone is buried at Westminster Abbey. It's an unbelievable, takes your breath away. Every time I go to England, I go there first. I love it. I just, it's amazing. Who would have prophesied? But the Lord's going to do an amazing thing with you, John Newton. Born to a funny family, a mother who will never be able to raise you, and a father who will never treat you like a child. You will be the offscour of the earth. You will do things so cruel and so amazing and so deep that nobody will know how to treat you. Who could have prophesied? And at the end, they will bury you at Westminster Abbey with the kings and the queens and the Churchills and the... Start naming all the greats you know. Sean Newton is what? Going to be buried where? Westminster Abbey. They'll raise a monument to this man. And they will say about this man, he was a man of grace. He was a man who overcame the filth of the world. He was a man who showed everybody they could change. We will honor this man in Westminster Abbey. And his song, Amazing Grace, has been recorded and sung by more gospel singers, by more languages than any other single song in the world. In the world. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. What would life be without that song? Weddings, funerals, times of brokenness, times where, I mean, everyone sings. They go back to that song. Why? Because in the words of that song is a man singing from the wheel he was on. That piece of clay was not because of his good works, his good ideas, it was not because he could pull himself around. It's because he stayed on the wheel and the sovereign hands of God took a dirty, horrible piece of clay and made something, something, something good. Something good. God the potter is on a mission in your life. He's on a mission. He has intentions of taking formless, useless, broken lives. People who would never see themselves the way God sees them. People who think too much has been done. It's never, ever the right thought from God to think that you can't start new. Ever. Because God keeps working.
said, don't get off the wheel. I'm, I'm, I'm working here. I have intention. God has special intentions for every one of us. <clears throat> God, the potter, I'm on the wheel. And I believe God is at work in my life. The phrase that I've alluded to is in verse 4 where it says, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred. Another translation says it turned out badly. Another one says it certainly is imperfect. Another translation says it was spoiled, corrupted, and ruined. God specializes in marred lives. Specials. Ruin, spoiled, turned out badly. My hero, one of the best writers, I think, who lived in my lifetime, Chuck Colson. There's nobody that has spoken truer words in wiser ways than Chuck Colson. But look at what he was on that wheel. The man who goes to prison, and you know his story. And God says, but I'm, I'm, I'm making something. Well, we can't see it. He's a liar. He's disloyal. He has he absolutely taken the American whole value system and stuffed it down the toilet. What kind of a man are you going to make from this? Because this man has brought reproach to the whole nation. All that Chuck did to that point. But when you read his life story, which is worth reading, he met God. And God says, I'm going to use your greatest flaw to become your greatest message. Is it not true that many times God takes what is the worst piece of you and makes it his grace declaration to others? Is it not true that if you could map somehow your flaws, your weakness, your genes that you'd like to get rid of, that genetic piece of you, that if you could map your life, could it be that where there is great flaw and great weakness, there will be great grace and a great message and a great turnaround. Paul says, those who have had to be in a place to receive compassion, those who had to be encouraged, they make great encouragers. If you're going through a hard time, you might want to talk to someone who's been through a hard time. Maybe not someone that's never, ever had a hard time. What is in your life right now that the potter would say, I know that you're marred. And you know, the, the actual word here for our modern vernacular would be messed up. Messed up. Marred is messed up. You've messed up, damaged. Important thing to see here is the clay was messed up, but it was still in the potter's hands. The potter was still working his will in that person. <clears throat> Here's some things people have said to me. 
I messed up my life so badly that I can't even imagine God has any future left for me. I know I turned to Jesus at one point in my life, but I keep blowing it so badly. I'm not sure I can come back. I hate myself. I'm just really messed up. I messed up. I made really bad decisions. And now I seem to be wandering in some kind of a darkness. I want desperately to return to Jesus and be put back together again, but I don't know where to start. Don't know where to start. Those would be words echoing different seasons in all of our lives. I messed up. And sometimes when you mess up, you mess up other people. One thing for me to mess up, it's horrible if I mess up and I mess you up and you and you and you. As a father, as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a friend, as a boss, as a spiritual leader, it haunts me to think of messing up. Because I don't just mess me up. I mess you up. At least part of your brain, part of your conviction, part of your confidence goes down because I messed up. Scary thing. It's a scary thing. But you can't walk in fear. You've got to walk in confidence that the potter knows what he's doing and that the potter will keep me by his grace for your sake and my sake. And even if I do mess up, God will somehow rescue me from myself. And turn it around. All things work together for good. Here's my statements. God has the power to do what he needs to do in your life. You know it, I know it. Stay on the wheel. God has the authority to do what he needs to do in your life. He has the power and he has the authority. He's sovereign. God uses pressure to work deep in our lives. The pressure in the hands of that potter Sometimes we feel that as God is dealing with us. Have you heard people say this? Boy, I had a real setback. Real setback. In God's divine power, authority, wisdom, patience, perseverance, graciousness, and unbelievable supernatural wisdom on how to deal with people, sometimes a setback is a setup. It's a setup. You say, man, it just really has taken me by surprise that all these things have happened. And now what a setback. God says, not a setback. I just need to reposition you for a setup for something different in your life. It's a setup. Crisis, setup. Surprises, it's a setup. You thank God, it's surprised. Oh, my goodness gracious, I didn't see that coming. God never is surprised. God uses pressure. I wish God would find a different tool than pressure. But he uses it. God is always in control. Seeing in advance what has to be done. 
He's in control. God is making us into useful vessels. Yeah, I believe this. I believe this. God is making us into useful vessels. Can I hear an amen? Amen.